Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 373. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of FinTech Nexus. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our comprehensive news service, FinTech Nexus News not only covers the biggest fintech news stories, our daily newsletter delivers the 10 most important fintech stories into your inbox every morning. And we have special editions for Latin America as well as UK and Europe. Stay on top of fintech news by subscribing at news.fintechnexus.com slash subscribe. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Abby Levy. She is the founder and managing partner at Primetime Partners. Now, Primetime Partners are a venture capital firm that focuses on a unique population. They are focused on improving the quality of life for older adults. A part of their practice is focused on fintech. They have obviously a lot of healthcare type stuff as well. In this conversation, we focus primarily on fintech, obviously, and we cover a lot of ground. And you know, Abby kind of takes us through many of the different verticals that have massive opportunities. Because let's face it, this is a large market that, I mean, has been all but ignored by fintech founders for the most part. I mean, there is it's starting to change. Most fintech companies are focused on populations much younger. But she goes through the different opportunities that we have. And this is obviously a population that is only going to get bigger. She gives us some stats around that as well. And she also talks about what it's going to take to kind of move the focus of fintech founders into this population. It was a fascinating episode. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Abby. So happy to be here, Peter. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So... Let's get started by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. You don't have a, a typical background for the people I have on the show, so but you've had a really interesting career path. Why don't you tell us some of the highlights? Well, I am a uh, by chance venture capitalist. And the by chance is that I backed into being a venture capitalist after having been a marketer and an operator and a founder myself. I studied languages in college and found myself in management consulting post-college. After business school, ended up in consumer products marketing, running product for a business called OXO International that makes kitchen housewares and kitchen tools, and spent most of my career working with either advising or in operating roles at brands, always on growth marketing and BD, until I got connected with Ariana Huffington, who was then editor at the Huffington Post. And she had written a book called Thrive, prior to which she'd written a book called The Sleep Revolution. And she wanted to turn it into a a business focused on helping employers help their teams perform at their highest level. And so I joined Ariana as the founding president of Thrive Global, which is now a Series C-backed business that continues on in the employer well-being space. And as a startup co-founder, recognized that's one of the most challenging jobs there is continued to be involved in the business, but moved over to SoulCycle, where I was running uh, our digital products. And all the while had a personal issue that I was trying to solve, which was around how my father, who had been retired for 20 years, how he could spend his time meaningfully. And I say this because he's not a one percenter, doesn't play golf. And I started kind of down this exploration of what happens to us when we age and we kind of age out of our jobs. And I was really disappointed with the answer. 
which is basically we have an entire government system set up for older adults. We have healthcare system. We really don't have an infrastructure around other types of experiences and products for an older population. And so I started writing a few business plans of businesses to start that would solve my father's some of his financial needs, some of his kind of how to spend time meaningfully and purpose needs. And then I really forget who it was, but a friend of mine said to me, you know, Abby, instead of starting one of these businesses, what if you started a venture fund to fund dozens of these businesses? And so that's how I became an accidental venture capitalist through, I'd say, necessity. As part of my journey, when I was talking to a good friend of mine, telling him I was going to start a venture fund focused on our older population, he's like, gosh, that's what my dad wants to do. And I'm very lucky that one of my friends, John Patrickoff, had told me that Alan Patrickoff, who has been an investor for 50 years, he is not an accidental venture capitalist. He is a <laughs> legendary, in fact, sometimes called the grandfather of venture capital, that he was interested in the same space. And so I knew Alan already because he was a board observer at Thrive Global, having invested in the business. So we knew each other professionally, and now we knew each other in terms of interest area. So that's how we started Primetime Partners together, which is a seed to Series A venture capital fund focused on products and services and technologies that address the population 50 plus. Before we go on, just I'd love to get a little bit more detail about Alan because yeah. you know, a lot of people may not know him because he is, he's past his prime, shall we say, as far as uh, when he was a major force in Silicon Valley and what have you. So tell us a little bit about his journey. Well, I would absolutely say he has not passed his prime and he would agree that he's going to live to be age 116. Okay. He's running, walking the New York Marathon this fall, going to Burning Man this summer. And he just published his memoir called No Red Lights, which is a fantastic book for all listeners, whether you're an investor, a founder, or just someone interested in business. But Alan's journey was really, I don't know, but many of the listeners might be familiar with one of the largest global PE firms called Apex Partners. And Apex is a huge, you know, tens of billions of dollars of assets under management. But what most people don't know is that APAX actually stands for Allen, Patrickoff, and Associates. So it actually bears his moniker as the founding partner of APAX. From there, after starting APAX, I think he got, I wouldn't say bored, but I think he got more interested in earlier stage investing. And as happens today as well, the larger the fund, the harder it is to do early stage investing. So he left to start Graycroft Partners, which is now a several billion dollar venture capital fund. And along the way, he has made investments, most notably in media businesses and podcast businesses, but also across consumer technology. And he's funded 400 founders over his career or more. And so he is truly, I'd say, legendary from that perspective. And he's a diehard New Yorker. So definitely better known in the New York venture community than the West Coast. Um, Has not done a lot of fintech. So that's also part of the reason why, you know, less depth in that area. But it's wonderful having been a partner with him and his wealth of experience to add to our investment strategy. Sure, sure. Well, if you're going to start a venture fund, it's always good to have someone with that much deep experience. So before we delve into primetime partners, what's your sense on the financial well-being of seniors in this country? There's a lot of articles being written that they don't have enough retirement funds, relying on Social Security. But what have you found when you're looking at seniors in this country as far as financial well-being goes? It's not a good picture, Peter. I mean, I think you have to start first of all, with the issue of longevity, which is no one predicted that people would be able to live this long. A healthy 65-year-old woman today 
has a 53 chance of living to be 90 and a 13% chance of living to be 100. That is something for today's older adults. The fact that even 13% could live to be 100 and that number is going to go up to 50% of people born after 2007 will live to be 100. None of our actuarial models, none of our housing systems, none of the infrastructure, talk about social security, ever predicted this many people living that long. And this is a global issue. It's not just here in the US. And the strain that puts on the fundamental math that the entire financial system has been you know, engineered around is that the math doesn't add up. And so you have to start with the longevity statistics to understand what the financial pressure is. You then layer in the fact that one third of employees don't have any retirement accounts or IRAs. So the loss of the employer as the funder of pensions and putting it into defined contribution plans has left a huge portion of Americans with no retirement savings who have chosen not to put it in. Of course, there is a choice there, but it's also that it's left a huge population vulnerable. And so economists now predict that 50% of older adults will run out of money. So that is where we stand. I'm sorry to be doom and gloom, but that's where we stand. It's like I was just reading something over the weekend that someone was writing about that they think someone alive today is going to live to 150. I mean, if you get someone to 150, I mean, the average age is going to continue to grow as we get better at uh, you know, solving diseases and that sort of thing. I mean, it's urgent now and it's only going to get more urgent, it feels like, as time goes on. So, so given that, as you, you point out, there's not a whole lot of attention being paid by entrepreneurs to this age group. But why do you think that we don't have a whole slew of fintech companies focusing on this massive market? I think two reasons. One is I think there is a perception that the government is going to step in with a social layer and take care of everybody. Japan has the largest aging population in the world. I mean, sorry, largest percentage of their population is older. Yeah. And the government largely funds, you know, they fund healthcare, housing, and, and they there's a huge social safety net. So I do think people assume the social safety net's going to capture older Americans. And so that makes it less enticing for people to start private sector businesses if they think that there's just not money on the private sector side. There's only, you know, there's money on the government side. So I think that's one reason. I think a second reason is that it wasn't really a personal issue for many founders. Many founders start businesses for issues that they personally can identify with. Right. And the people coming out of my alma mater, Harvard Business School, they're not thinking about the average American's you know, retirement issues. It's just not top of mind You know, when you've got Web 3.0 and a bunch of other high growth type businesses. And I think COVID has changed that. In fact, I don't think I can see it in our numbers of founders we're seeing. All of a sudden during COVID, every person became a caregiver of some sort. Whether you're helping grandma FaceTime her doctor for the first time or helping someone pay their bills online because they can't go to the post office, people really understood on a personal level. I mean, not directly, but you know, in little bits and pieces, we're seeing founders focus on these problems like never before, Peter, because it became personal. And it was an unfortunate byproduct of COVID that we all started taking care of our older generation in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go through a list here. This is something that was actually, I think it was sent to me by your PR agency, but I found it really interesting because there's there's lots of opportunities here, like different types of opportunities that you know entrepreneurs that are listening to this show, if they're looking about their next idea, I think jump on one of these things because this market is only going to get bigger. So maybe let's start talking about firstly, liquidity. 
a lot of older adults own large assets like their home that obviously isn't generating any cash. So tell us a little bit about the opportunity when it comes to liquidity. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's an overarching theme here, which is our fintech environment has been focused on asset accumulation, not decumulation. And as a society, since we're the land of milk and honey and we're the land of capitalism, everything is about getting more. And so our whole financial services system is about asset accumulation. In fact, the fact that people make money on AUM, by definition, it's on accumulation. (laughs) But the reality is, is that if you're doing a really good job of managing your financial security and your financial future, you will have a very thoughtful asset decumulation strategy. You build it up and then the second half of your life, you take it down. And that process of going up and down is not what our system set up to do. It's mm-hmm. really only set up to go up. And there's also a lot of, I'd say, pressures that kind of view asset decumulation as a crisis-only solution, which is where reverse mortgages come in, a last resort versus having an intentional and prudent asset decumulation strategy. And so where we have found opportunity is really on this question of asset decumulation. Two-thirds of older adults own their own home. Average home value in terms of the equity that the cash they can take out of their home values can be up to $200,000, $300,000 on average in America. This is a tremendous amount of money to be able to tap into. And we've made one investment in the space that's a fair, consumer-friendly home equity product called Fraction. And there will be other types of elements around home equity. But it's not just your home. It's your life insurance policy, collectibles. You know, There's a lot of assets that people have where they don't view them as assets. And, and even the whole share economy as well is an opportunity. And I'm sure you've seen the statistics that you know the average age of an Airbnb owner, I guess, or Airbnb is, you know, in the late 40s. And so, you know, just thinking about how you tap into the liquidity of your assets should be part of the American dream, not just the accumulation piece. Right, right. There's another category here called pre-retirement, like people ages 40 to 60. This is sort of the prime income earning years for most people. And again, well, we haven't seen a whole lot of focus on even on this group when it comes to from fintech. So what are some of the things that you're looking at there? So pre-tirement is an interesting space. And I think the area here is really in some ways around financial advice and the fact that 50% of Americans don't have a financial plan and that financial planning industry, in fact, I was just speaking at a conference for RIAs. You know, they're really looking at the top 20% of Americans in terms of their business model. And then we've got everybody else. And so we've been very interested in, and we made two investments in the space around this pre-tirement planning, because there's so many decisions you make, especially in this age, even down to how and when do I take social security, which happens at 65? What do I do about my health insurance? How do I think about, you know, home ownership and taking a mortgage or not? All of these decisions, even you know the tax situations and estate planning, and even if you don't have an estate, and I put in air quotes as if you're Hugh Hefner, everybody technically has an estate. It's just whatever your belongings are is your estate. The majority of Americans don't think about these things ahead of time. So retirement is really a way to get ready and to be realistic about what's to come. And also has an important impact on how long you work because people are retiring way too early, either because unfortunately they're forced to because of a variety of issues going on in the workplace or they think they're ready to retire because I've got 1 million saved. And what they don't know without a plan is that depending on their lifestyle, that may not be enough. Right. Yeah. A million dollars is not what it used to be. That's for sure. Okay. So then let's talk about post-retirement. You've touched on it there, but 
again, like what are some of the things that the fintech companies that should be offering these adults, particularly when it comes to maybe earning income as they uh, after they've quit their career, so to speak? The gig economy has not been able to reach an older demographic in a major way. Again, average Uber driver age is older than you know you'd think, but there are so many gig economy businesses for people who have expertise, knowledge, connections, and it's not really being tapped into because a lot of the existing gig economy digital apps are just really focused on a younger audience who's used to working within these types of apps. And so it just doesn't exist right now that there are marketplaces for talent, for experienced workers, number one. Number two, employers need, I'd say, employee benefits or employer solutions to be able to off-ramp employees gradually. So it's not, you know, you're either working one day or not working the next, but there are these hybrid situations, the same way there are for on-ramps for women who want to come back to work or parents who want to come back to work after taking time off to raise their kids. There's been lots of innovation and employer solutions there and very few employer solutions focused on the exit of employees and making that be more tiered versus black and white, all or nothing. Right. Okay. And then um, another segment here, you talk about senior-friendly credit products. So what do you mean by that? I mean, if you go back to the fact that the math doesn't work, that the average net worth of an average American isn't going to live out their lifespan, we have to tap into other monetary sources. And those monetary sources are going to be their children. And that is not being done right now. I, I like to call it the reverse 529 which is parents and their community, elders, if you will, the older generation has put away and saved money for the younger generation via tax-advantaged college plans. We don't have the alternative where people are able to tap into their kids' credit or kids' balance sheets to be able to fund the remainder of their life. A perfect example is in the home care space. And I'll talk about it in a little bit, but 90% of Americans think that in-home care, like having an aide come to your house to help you with your activities of daily living, like bathing or feeding. 90% of Americans think that's paid for by Medicare. And it's not. It's consumer paid. And the average burden is going to be $138,000 for two-thirds of Americans who need in-home care. It's $138,000 that the average American does not have in their wallet. And how are you going to pay for that? Well, ultimately, the kids are going to have to pay. But there's no system right now. I mean, I don't know about you, but my number of friends, I'm 47, the number of my friends who say the strife and the pain of negotiating with their siblings of who pays for what and how, it's not as easy as Venmo to think about paying for our parents. So what are the credit products where we can say to the home care agency, let's put a payment plan together. We're going to back it. It's kind of like a guarantor. We'll guarantor it. And buy now, pay later, all of those things for these major expenses, senior living, home care, healthcare, extraordinary bills, all of these big expenses, somehow thinking about how other people can help pay. Yeah. As you're talking there, it made me realize that there's a huge opportunity here. Obviously, the, the laws aren't caught up with this yet, but why can't you contribute to a, like an IRA type product that grows tax-free to be spent by an elderly person who needs some I know. money. I mean, that, that product is crying out to exist. Yeah. But I think it's in some ways, Peter, just like that asset decumulation, that the American dream was that we make a lot of money, we die with it in our bank account, and we leave it to our children. Not that our children are going to have to pay for us. And what's happening right now is that the next generation 
not actually the existing younger generation, but certainly for those in their 80s and 90s right now, their offspring have greater assets than they did on average. Right. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, so then you also talk about care insurtech, mm-hmm. insurance innovation to address burdensome home healthcare costs. So you did touch on it. So tell us a little bit more about that. The hidden home healthcare costs I just referred to, while the average is one hundred and thirty-eight thousand dollars, if you have Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or some sort of long duration debilitating disease, it can be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of in-home care. And so there's a long-term care insurance industry that's been around for a while, but only 7% of Americans have long-term care insurance. And that is because it's a very expensive product. And there's been lots written about it that LTC or long-term care as a product hasn't worked, hasn't worked for the insurers, they've lost their shirts, and it hasn't worked for consumers because it's so expensive, only 7% are getting it. And so the innovation on all types of home care insurance, whether it falls into supplemental insurance or riders on life insurance or annuity products, you know, there's product innovation on how to price these types of home care insurance products. There's also another type of concept that's making its way back, which I'm really excited about. I'm not sure if you're familiar with what a tontine is or was. It was a European concept where basically it developed in the 1700s, where everybody put money in the pot. And basically, the person who lived the longest got the money. <laughs> and so it, in some ways, was this collective funding of longevity. And it was outlawed by Napoleon in the late 1800s because it ended up getting kind of violent <laughs> with people you know, killing other yeah. people off to get to the pot of money. But there's two startups we're looking at now that are bringing back this concept of, hey, listen, if I'm a healthy person and I believe that I'm going to live long, why wouldn't I put money into a collective insurance product, a different type of insurance, and not just get linear benefits, but get extra benefits because I live longer? And so it's kind of this you know, other type of insurance innovation that we're going to need to see to also create the right incentives for people to take care of themselves and to not you know, incur big healthcare costs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. That's another great idea. So then... Um, Another one here, you talk about health fintech crossover. What do you mean by that exactly? You know, we do a lot of work with health plans, Medicare Advantage plans and other types of health plans, you know, United, Cigna, and and all of the biggies. And they have always been focused on their medical loss ratio, which is really looking at how they keep people healthier for the premiums they get from employers and individuals. And financial security or insecurity has really never been an issue that they have been super focused on. It falls into bad debt, you know, number on their balance sheet. And, you know, they write off a certain amount of bad debt, but that was kind of always taken for granted that certain portion of Americans can't pay. Hospitals have the same thing. Sometimes their bad debt ratios are up to like 60%. It's crazy how few people can actually pay for the cost of healthcare. And so what we're starting to see is we're starting to see the healthcare system, whether they're hospitals or payers, starting to recognize that they need to play a role in fintech in order to deliver their products. So for example, on the provider side or hospital side, they are all starting to put in place different payment solutions because a larger portion of healthcare payments is moving direct to consumer, either because that's deductibles and or consumerization of of more elective types of healthcare. And they are, are really partnering with fintech startups on different types of payments, not just buy now, pay later, but all sorts of different types of payment schemes. And so they're recognizing they need to be in the fintech business. 
Mm -hmm. Um, You might find this fascinating, but still for hospitals, only 25% have digital payments. 75% are still send you a bill in the mail and cross their fingers and hope you pay. So the whole payment side of healthcare delivery is ripe for innovation because they're leaving so much money on the table. And the same thing on the payer side, what they're most interested in is the financial stress. Because if they have a patient or a plan member who's worried about being able to afford a procedure and they don't get the right procedure because they're worried they can't pay for it, that drives their healthcare costs up because they go to the hospital because they didn't get the right procedure. Mm -hmm. So they're starting, and I'm seeing this in my conversations with payers, they're starting to recognize, hey, we need to play a role in affordability and payments or else people are going to go to the hospital and it's going to really drive up our costs. Right. Right. That makes sense. So, so then when you look at the founders that are coming across your desk and even the ones that you've invested in, I mean, I'd love to know just, is it across the board when it comes to age of founders? They typically have some personal story, like you mentioned early on. Can you tell us a little bit about the founders that you're talking to? Well, I'm thrilled to say we've looked at about 900 businesses since we've started. And I would say all of those businesses, the founder has a personal story. One of the great things about what I do focus on an underserved market like older adults is that people are there and innovating because they care about the problem. And so that's the kind of a given. Everyone has a personal story of a grandfather who ran out of money, a mother who you know was a caregiver and you know lost her job because she was caregiving for her mother. There's a personal story. So that is a given almost that if you don't have a personal narrative, that's a disadvantage to the business. We have been actively looking for founders age 50 plus. Entrepreneurship is typically a game for those in their 20s and 30s. And so I'm thrilled to say at least five of our 25 founders are age 50 plus, but that is very unusual and very hard to find. And so we're continuing to look and to to be very aggressive on that front. Otherwise, the founder profile fits the industry sector. Two thirds of our investments are in healthcare. Healthcare founders have a slightly more female. I mean, it's not disproportionately female, but there are more women starting healthcare businesses than, say, fintech. And so, you know, our fintech founders look like fintech founders and our consumer founders look like consumer founders. So I would say there's nothing really disproportionate about our portfolio founders other than the common passion. A few kind of on the older adult side. And the last thing I'll say is because I'm a female GP, there's just a higher... I think, affinity for female founders who are looking for female GPs on their cap tables. And so 45% of our CEOs are women, not founders, CEOs, which is definitely disproportionate to the venture capital industry. Sure. That's great. Do you think we will see a flurry of activity of fintech founders starting companies focused on this audience? And if so, what what's it going to take or what will be the tipping point? What will change kind of the, this you know, to make it so that people are focusing on this problem? I don't think we're going to see a flurry. I think it will still be a handful of folks who want to take on these challenges because there's, you know, distribution still a big issue with all fintech. But the D2C fintech that's kind of emerged over the past decade, especially what's going on in the market right now, I think you'll see a lot of D2C stuff slowing down a bit while the incumbents with their big brands and distribution are going to be the ones innovating. I really do think that's going to be happening in a big way. I do think this payments kind of side of things is going to continue to be, and it's already seeing it, you know, you're seeing across all payments, the whole payments industry has continued to grow uh, Mm -hmm. rapidly. So I think that's going to happen in the spaces around older adults and aging. 
But I think it's slow going in a way because we're just at the beginning, Peter. There's skepticism on whether this audience is valuable and whether this audience can be reached and try new products. And those, I'd say, stereotypes or ageist points of views still persist. But I will tell you in my conversations with large insurers, they are very focused on this population because it is the largest wealth transfer of a generation. And when those life insurance policies are collected, they absolutely want to get the next generation. And the same thing with the banks. They are seeing the credit unions are seeing their customers pass on and they want the next generation. So I think a lot of the innovation you'll see either because they're acquiring startups, partnering with startups or building the ideas themselves are going to be driven by incumbent enterprises. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So last question then, can you paint us a vision for what you see as a healthy future for fintech focused on senior population? I'll come in. There might be a few attributes. Okay. One attribute is that it's not one population and that we see businesses, particularly fintech businesses, understanding that this is a very heterogeneous market. So single women in their 50s are different from married couples in their 80s. And right now, our system treats them all the same. Point one is starting to have innovators understand the sub-segments and design products for those sub-segments. It's happened in neobanks. I mean, there's a neobank for every community these days. In fact, there's one we just invested in that's a neobank for kind of pre-retirement folks called Sagewell. So I think we're going to see that sophistication of segmenting the market as one aspiration. And I think a second aspiration is to be able to understand because the math doesn't work, trying to squeeze the same amount of financial outcome from an individual when longevity and lack of retirement assets don't help them, we're going to have to get creative. Like, as you said, why can't we contribute to other people's IRAs? Like, We're going to have to figure out some things that change the rules to help the math work better. And then the last thing is we need visibility. We need founders who want to take on an issue and shout from the rooftops. I mean, if you think about what has happened with Silicon Valley's love of Bitcoin, you know, think about it. It just became a phenomenon, right? And everybody knew about it because there was the marketing and the visibility behind it. I was on a panel at the Milken Institute in LA a couple weeks ago, and they went down the panel of some very senior folks in retirement industry. And they asked each of us, what's your wish? If you could wave a magic wand, what would you want? And I said, retirement and saving for retirement needs a new PR campaign. Yeah. Nobody talks about it. No one wants to do it. It's kind of like eat your broccoli and we got to change it. Like you want to live independently and, and have a flourishing 70s, 80s, and 90s. Okay, you're 25, get on it. Yeah, the trouble is you're 25 and you can't imagine being that old. No, no, but that's why it needs a serious marketing revamp. It does. It needs a PR campaign, as you say. So anyway, Abby, really fascinating chatting with you. Um, great to hear about, learn more about your company and, uh, yeah, best of luck. It's a growing industry. At least you don't have to worry about that. You're not, uh, this segment is going to continue to grow for a long time to come. Absolutely. Thanks, Peter, for the time. Okay. Thank you. Fintech entrepreneurs like to talk about total addressable market or TAM. Let's face it, there's no bigger total addressable market uh, when it comes to audience segments than the senior market. And it is going to get bigger every year, probably forever, uh, certainly for a long, long time. As time goes on, two seniors, are gonna, they've already had you know, the pandemic where they've sort of been 
forced to learn how to use digital banking services. So I think there's probably a bigger receptivity now than ever before. And keep in mind, as people age into the senior years, you're going to have much more tech-savvy people coming in. So you know, if you've got a fintech service that can really be targeted to these people, I think you've got a potential massive, massive market to enjoy. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye.